Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. Our regular top of the show host, Alex Wilhelm, is taking a somewhat, I think, well-deserved vacation this week, although somehow he's still managing to like my tweets 30 seconds after publishing them. Alex, if you are listening, it's really time to take time off. Seriously. But for the rest of you, I'm Danny Crichton, and joining me today is TechCrunch's venture reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. How is it going, Tosh? I'm doing well now. I'm a little bummed because Alex has not been favoriting my tweets 30 seconds <laughs> um, after I tweet them, but I'm doing well. The, the SF heat wave is over, so no complaints here. Well, fantastic. Well, for longtime listeners of Equity, you know that we usually book VC cast on the show, but we've been intentionally socially distancing ourselves on the podcast for the past few months. So I'm delighted to say that joining us this week, we have Iris Troy, a partner at Floodgate. Iris, welcome. Hi, happy to be back. Absolutely. Uh, this is Iris's fourth time on the show, and you may know her from her news roundup called Monday Musings on Twitter, as well as through Floodgate's dozens and dozens of investments. Now, Iris, it says here in your bio that you have a hobby of old school photography. Is that still true? You know, I feel like these days in quarantine, well, first of all, it probably doesn't shock anyone here that I don't actually have a dark room in my home. <laughs> and so access is definitely limited. But I'll be the first to admit, like, I applaud everyone who's out there baking and doing the 30-day challenges. I am not one of those people. I'm uh, distance learning with my two uh, young kids and just trying to survive day to day. So I would love to get back to hobbies. Now is not a great time. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to it and um, lots of great things to talk about. We have a ton of funding rounds. We're going to talk about ByteDance and a, a hot topic in the Valley today, the future of work, remote work, cost of living adjustments, and more galore. So we're going to start with a company called Lever Edge. And uh, we're going to start with it because Alex, the dictator, isn't here. So I get to determine the script for once. And <laughs> Lever Edge is a, is a really cool company. So we've talked a lot about a fintech on the show, tons of rounds. This is one that really came out to me as being quite unique in the space. And so Lever Edge targets student loan market specifically private student loans. And what the company does is it helps link students together to try to get a volume discount from banks. And so the idea is like, hey, instead of trying to negotiate your own rate, you can go and work with 700 of your other students at business school, at medical school, and work together and say, hey, instead of getting a $50,000 loan, what would you give for a $50 million group loan? And what they found is that they can actually save students sometimes as much as $15,000 by getting a group discount rate. Raised 2.5 million seed led by NFX, along with Global Founders Capital and, and Ernest and SoFi, uh, the founders from Ernest and SoFi. And so I'm curious, what do we think about this sort of fintech play, this sort of collective bargaining on the consumer side? I mean, I think it's kind of fascinating, um, especially if you think about it first from the graduate school level, which is that if you're going to medical school, if you're going to business school, there are natural career paths coming out of those graduate degrees and associated with those tend to be a certain income level. And so in terms of being able to have from the lender's perspective, a certain amount of risk taken off the table because you understand what the likelihood is. I'm sure there's actuaries that have studied on an individual basis, what is the likelihood of repayment from people in those professions. Now you're just able to scale that at a, at a broader level instead of necessarily giving uh, loans to people just because of their school, but not necessarily having a sense of their major, their concentration or what they're planning to do afterwards. Yeah, my, my big question there was if, they're just targeting business school students. I really liked that it started with this Harvard business and meeting students through the Facebook group. But I was wondering if it can attack a broader group of students, because like you said, Iris, the risk is different with a Harvard business grad versus maybe a non-idealic student. But everyone wants a, a lower or maybe no interest on their loans. So that's that was my big question mark when I when I first heard about them. 
Yeah, I think the, the key here is, you know, the student loan market is huge, but a lot of it is federal backed, right? And so those loans have fixed in, uh, interest rates, banks can't charge anything else. It's really kind of a, a pretty bad game, right? There's not a lot of margin on these loans. You have to have huge volumes to make the, the business worthwhile. What's interesting here is they focus specifically on private student loans, right? So in context, probably not undergrad, probably grad school, or in undergrad, if you're taking out an enormous amount of money, like beyond forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year, you would go into the private student loan market. And in that world, the interest rates are actually really, really high, right? You're going from maybe two, three, four percent up to eight, nine, ten percent. And so lenders have a lot more flexibility to offer that deal to students. I also wanted to give a shout out to the scrappiness with the founder story. The the founders met uh, when they were entering Harvard Business School. They found their first group of students that they wanted to join together to bargain from a Facebook group. And I guess to me, that kind of scrappiness, one is rewarded in a remote world and is something that gives me more faith in in the company, for sure. I mean, I think that's a great point because I also love that aspect of the founding story in that there is the question these days about if we are assuming going forward, we're all gonna be part of a distributed workforce, even the founding team, how important is it that you've A, had a history together, or B, you're physically co-locating. And the fact that they were able to catalyze so many students to join them all virtually is really intriguing. I think the story goes that they didn't actually meet in person until the school year began. And yet they had started negotiating this group rate for the loans far in advance of that. No, that's absolutely right, Iris. And, and actually, not only got the students together virtually, they hadn't met together in person and they actually negotiated that first tranche of loans before they even met. They did it all uh, uh, vicariously. So um, one was working, I believe, at Netflix. The other was at Boeing. And, and they actually, after work, you know, clearly work was ending at like 4 p.m. or something like this. They went to the bank branch, or maybe they have really nice banks over in Seattle um, but uh, who are open late. But they would go over to the bank branch and actually negotiate and try to get better deals as they got uh, more and more students to join the platform. So I think it is a great sign that you know, it is possible to build startups in a remote work environment. But let's be clear, they started, I believe, in July, and they didn't officially launch the company until the following May. And so it takes time, and oftentimes when you're fi figuring out new ideas, finding product market fit, it's not something that just happens in a couple of weeks. It did take them a lot of time to get all the pieces parts together. Another um, unique fintech story we, we saw this week was Stackin. Stackin raised $12.6 in a Series B, and it basically uses a text messaging service to connect younger consumers with money tips and eventually fintech apps. It was born off of this idea that there are way too many fintech companies to turn to if you want to be better at investing or saving. So let's be one step earlier in the navigation process for younger people and and maybe connect them to um, a couple of different options. It's kind of like a curated app marketplace. And I was wondering like what you guys thought, like are you surprised that there's a company behind this and a business behind this? Yeah, I'll admit I was a little bit surprised. And again, like I think it's fascinating. I'd love to learn more. Um, but what immediately came to my mind was the story of LearnVest. I don't know if you guys remember that one, but it was a company that was actually acquired by, I want to say, Northwestern Mutual. I think their initial play had been um, helping especially women become more financially savvy. And then they ended up launching a series of financial products tailored towards that audience, were acquired in by Northwestern Mutual, and then they were actually shut down within three years. And so there's the question in my mind of when you try to do a niche play when it comes to educating people and then 
providing them access to financial products, how wide does that market have to become, right? So if one was based on gender and this one's more based on, I guess, age group, if we're targeting millennials, I would be very curious to see how it advances over time. Obviously, there's been incredible amounts of activity in FinTech. I mean, I just think about Credit Karma and they had initially started off as helping you find like a better credit card or better suited for you. And they've obviously grown beyond that and were just acquired by Intuit. And so the exits are there. But in my mind, there's the question of like, you know, what will be the evidence of traction for a company like this one? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, I was talking to the founder, Scott Grimes, and he, when I asked something similar to that line, he pointed to Intuit buying Credit Karma for, for $7 billion. And that was kind of, the, I'm, I'm guessing that's kind of one of the aspirations of a company like Stackin. Well, I think the, I mean, there's two sides here I think it was interesting. One is, you know, still to this day, uh, the cost for acquiring a customer for fintech startups is really, really, really high, right? Insanely high compared to almost any other vertical, right? You want to be Credit Karma and you're, you're selling essentially credit card offers, right? I mean, that's really the revenue model for Credit Karma. You know, you look at like how SoFi or some of these other companies have sort of expanded into multiple products. Well, you know, the reason they do that is is they start in one field and once you have that customer, you're like, well, let's get them a bank account. Let's get them a stock, you know, market account. Let's give them brokerage. Let's give them retirement savings. Let's try to get all these different products because we save so much money on the origination that it actually becomes a really great business model. So the question here to me is like, can they acquire these users cheaply? Um, because if they can, the referral fees you can get from a lot of the other fintech players who are on their platform is pretty high, but they're competing exactly with the same companies, right? If you're trying to get people who are wanting to be financial literate, guess what? Every other financial advisory company trying to do this with an app is competing for those ad slots and those Instagram posts. And so I just think that this is a really competitive market, but interesting that Octopus led a 12.6 million uh, Series B round for them. Yeah. And the kind of last example I want to throw in the space was like when Robinhood acquired snacks, I think at least I was surprised by by the acquisition. But we see like the 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 financial literacy plays are are so key to any of these successes. So at the end of the day, I think I am like bullish on Stacken because it's trying to be like it's trying to get people into a company like Robinhood before they even realize what Robinhood is. So I'm all here for, I guess, widening the pool of people trying to work on personal finance. So that's on the fintech side. And so here we're going to completely pivot to another space. We're going to go into the the face recognition AI space. I mean, this was a, a particularly interesting company to me, just just completely in its own vertical. It's a company, I guess you call it DID. I don't actually know, I know how to I say it. <laughs> it's spelled capital D dash capital I capital D. And it stands for um, de-identification. It's actually a, a startup battlefield alumnus of ours. And for those who are startup founders listening, startup battlefield applications, are open right now. You can apply on TechCrunch.com. But um, they raised $13.5 million from AXA Ventures. And what they do is they actually scan faces coming into a product. Let's say you have a security camera platform and you have these faces coming in. They will actually scrub the face just slightly to prevent any face recognition algorithm from being able to scan that face and uh, sort of figure out who that person is. And so they're sort of targeting verticals where there's more concern around privacy or legal or, or you know regulatory reasons why uh, companies actually have to scrub these photos. So I, I thought it was actually really interesting as an Israeli-based company. Uh, what did we think about that? The, the round was led by AXA Ventures, Y Combinator, Hyundai, Omron, and beyond. Jonathan mentions in the story that the the market for these companies is kind of low slash, you know, not fully developed yet. I was surprised to see such a stacked list of investors too. It's a lot of money, good investors. So in some, there is some use cases that people believe in that I'm not seeing. 
It's interesting just because, you know, one of the investors that you mentioned is Kande, which is a strategic, which you don't necessarily expect to see strategics come in that early, which makes me wonder, I think, to Danny's point around, is some of this going to be written into the future of regulation for certain industries. Mm -hmm. And so as you think about, okay, all the autonomous vehicle companies and how they will test via simulation software, but some of that is based on real data, do people have privacy concerns of now I can be tracked because I was in the background of one of those locations? It, I think that it's interesting because it's a non-obvious large opportunity for me today. But if you think the future is going to require a lot more privacy concerns to be front and center, then it's going to be something that is going to be a regulatory opportunity or an inflection point because it's actually going to be mandated. And I think that's where it's interesting to see the strategics come in at this stage because maybe they hear or see something that a commoner like myself doesn't necessarily have exposure to. Iris, I'm curious, you know, obviously you, you look at a lot of early stage and really, really early stage companies with Floodgate. How do you approach a company where, you know, it seems like a space that might come up in the next couple of years could be a really interesting space, but right now there's no market, right? There's not a lot of companies thinking like, gee, we need to create face, you know, recognition, de-identification software. Like there's no customer, at least from my perspective right now on that. How do you, how do you sort of project forward a couple of years and say, no, we're, we're, now is the right time to kind of get, make that kind of investment? Yeah, it's tricky. I feel like where, to be frank, we as, as a team are um, more experienced or, or better versed is actually kind of like the reverse of that, which is we see opportunities where there may be regulatory concern today, but we feel like there will be easing of that regulation going forward. So the classic example everyone's talking about right now with the pandemic is, you know, um, the regulation around telemedicine or, you know, phone consultations or video consultations has obviously been eased uh, state by state. The question is, is that is that going to go back to being friendly onerous post the pandemic or, or is this now the way going forward? And then the classic example from the flaggy portfolio is Lyft, right? That there was no regulation around can someone who's not, I guess, a professional chauffeur or have a taxi medallion be able to give rides to others. To be fair, like this concept of we're going to assume the market becomes big and frothy once regulation comes comes into place requiring it is something that, to be frank, like I probably don't have the right risk tolerance for. It feels like it's in some ways a bigger bet versus assuming that we might be able to address the concerns that make something highly regulated now in a matter that would allow some of that regulation to be eased. Iris, I think that's great. And uh, obviously, lots of interesting other rounds happened this week. We had a huge biotech round out of Andreessen Horowitz. Actually, quite a few. I mean, we actually rejected an enormous number cause, just because of the timing of the show. But clearly, whether it's you know post-coronavirus or people are finally getting around to announcing rounds uh, again, you know, the floodgates are open for a lot of funding. So if you haven't checked them out, definitely. Floodgate. Floodgate. <laughs> Look at that plug. I worked so hard to put that in there. That was really well planned on my part. But uh, let's let's go to round two uh, from from the early stage to the one of the richest companies in the world, at least in the private markets, ByteDance, which owns uh, the infinitely popular TikTok app. They announced officially their revenues from last year, hitting a net profit of three billion on seventeen billion in revenue in 2019, an insane amount of money. And then on top of that. There was the news of uh, Kevin Mayer, who joined out of Disney+. Plus. He ran Disney+, Plus for many years, and also uh, acquired many prominent companies, including Lucasfilm, Pixar, Marvel, and other major properties now at Disney. And so, I mean, what a, what a steal for them in terms of an executive. But I'm just curious what we think about the profit model, because I remember back in 2012 when Facebook was going public, and it was still a question of, like, can a social media company make money? And it seems to me like TikTok, you know, post-musically sort of just kind of popped onto the scene and they're already at 17 billion in revenue. Is this kind of the new norm for, for social media? 
my gosh, the scale is, to be frank, mind-boggling, right? I mean, uh, I think these days there was still a big question in my mind around uh, the future of social networks and the question around monetization. Because in the U.S., we'd seen a lot of examples of especially consumer-facing companies that had gotten to what was considered significant scale, but then their business model had been an afterthought. And so the example I would give is like Foursquare, right? A lot of the people loved it and were very kind of prolific on it, but they played around with a bunch of different business models and never had that big... IPO exit that people had been hoping for. And then, you know, TikTok comes along and everyone seems to be on it. The question in my mind continues to be, and maybe I'm just the outlier here, you know, in February before the pandemic hit, there was a lot of talk around um, privacy concerns, right? That was going to be a big sticking point for Facebook and other social networks going forward. And it feels like that concern has fallen by the wayside, except that it reared its head again when people were complaining about Zoom. And, and in fairness, you know, I think most people who were complaining about it were using Zoom for non-enterprise reasons, so not actually the use case for which it had been built. And they were saying, if it's not password protected, someone could uh, uh, Zoom Zoom bomb, I guess, you know, randomly join like a kid's um, classroom Zoom. There was a question of, is some of the information being routed through China? And yet everyone seems to be okay uploading videos of themselves onto a Chinese-based company. And so to me, that there seems like there's an inherent conflict there, but no one's actually really talking about it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree that there's younger kids on TikTok. You know, I'm, I'm 23 years old and like, it's like, like there's like a decade of people beneath me. Gosh, you're a dinosaur at this point. You're 23. <laughs> you're out of the consumer world. You're done with consumer investing. That's how ever. I feel. That's how I feel. No, but um, I totally agree, Iris. I think big tech was like it was getting all this momentum, and maybe there was going to be action. And you know, then when we realized Amazon could give us our essentials and we could get Instacart to deliver our groceries, we stopped caring about all the ethical concerns. Yeah, and to be clear, uh, you know, for context, for those who don't know, kind of ByteDance is corporate structure. ByteDance is something of a conglomerate. It has a, a number of different apps. It also splits its apps between the, the domestic and mainland Chinese market and the overseas market. So, so Kevin Mayer is taking over TikTok US and its sort of US and overseas TikTok component. ByteDance also has its uh, China domestic TikTok version, which is called Douyin. You know, as a, as a point of comparison, Kuaishou, which is the second largest kind of short video app in China, According to media reports, it made $7.2 billion in revenue in 2019. And they're also still competing head-to-head -head with, with TikTok. So they just released two weeks ago Zin, spelled Z-Y-N-N, which is also a short video form editing app that's now beating TikTok in a couple of markets on the App Store rankings. So I'm curious, like, you know, from the consumer side, is there still, like, energy in this market? Like, is short video kind of done? Because I remember when Vine was out on Twitter, you know, that was a short video, and then it kind of died off, and now, you know, TikTok is here like, is TikTok the winner in this space? Have they owned the space permanently? Or is there another competitor going to come up and try to take their throne? I feel like I'm sure Facebook will be copying this at some point. Yeah, it's <laughs> only a matter of time. Yeah, um, I, think, I think I heard someone say that it's going to get zucked soon. <laughs> and I loved that, that phrasing of it. But I think we're going to see if if US-based companies try to to borrow what makes TikTok so magical and successful. And I think part of that is like, this ability and chance for anyone to go viral and this like ongoing feed where you can just scroll instead of um, have to curate it for yourself. 
I, I don't necessarily think the market's closed. I think we saw that with TikTok working after Vine didn't. But I, I, I'm excited to see if, if we see something beyond Quibi pop up in the future for, for short form video and innovation. Yeah, I think the part that's been really interesting also is to see how much TikTok has, or rather TikTok content is now being featured on Twitter. Right. I'm sure you guys have seen it as well, where it first becomes big on TikTok. Totally. People then will post it on Twitter and say, follow me on TikTok. Right. So there's the kind of cross pollinization on the platforms. But that's something that's been interesting to, to chart as well. I saw, too, like this idea of TikTokers who maybe in some ways know that the apps strength may go away down the road. So they're using their TikTok success and making YouTube channels and getting millions of followers on that and starting merchandise, which I think is smart. Like if you're 18 and you just have I believe I saw someone who has like 60 million um, TikTok followers, Charlie D'Amelio. Um, she, she's, she's moving into different platforms to diversify it. So I think creator-wise, I'm happy to see that for them. I'm curious um, our opinion. So, so Kevin Mayer, you know, joining from, from Disney. So, you know, was a longtime deal maker there. But TikTok's kind of the opposite of Disney, right? In, in some ways, it is the most anti-Disney company you could possibly have. If Disney is the place where you go for multi-hundred million dollar budgeted films like Marvel and, and, and Star Wars, you know, TikTok is the complete opposite. They're six second films made by all of us. Huge numbers, but very small profits per video, obviously. And, and then you have this whole policy wing in which, you know, for the, at least from my perspective, Disney is not a major policy kind of focused company. It doesn't have the Facebook issues. It, it creates content. Right. And and beyond that, it doesn't really have a presence in D.C. So I'm curious, like, is he the right person? Like, is this the, who you would have chosen to sort of run TikTok U.S.? Yeah, I think that he has an incredible pedigree, right? And especially at a company like Disney, when you think about the deals that he's done, you know, I had the good luck of when I was at Goldman working on Disney's acquisition of Pixar. And I remember thinking through the, the financial model and it was never about just the, okay, well, at that point, Pixar's only releasing one movie a year, but how would those characters then get monetized in the amusement parks? And what does that mean in terms of character licensing for products and digital games? And so I think bringing in someone who can think about TikTok, not only from how it exists today in terms of the snippets of the videos, but maybe expanding it into other products. And then especially with this influencer category, right? That actually thinking about how can they start being monetized across multiple products, I think could be very interesting. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely really excited to see what he does with TikTok. And, you know, let's hope there's some privacy um, measures that he can bring. Because, yeah, I agree. I haven't heard Disney have too many screw-ups in that field. But Iris, I also wanted to get your thoughts. I know Floodgate is an investor in Twitter. And yesterday, our president, Donald Trump, tweeted something along the lines of um, he's, he's threatening to regulate and shut down social media companies. We're expecting an executive order later today um, on, on social media platforms. I was wondering how you and, and everyone over at Floodgate was digesting that and you know what it can mean for TikTok in the US, but also just social consumer apps in general. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we haven't been kind of like holders of Twitter stock for quite some time because it was an angel investment. So that really dates us. But I think on a broader perspective, it's always worrisome when you kind of run into these questions about where do people have the right to actually not only voice their opinion, but then there's been so much controversy over the last couple of years, this concept of fake news, and how quickly it can get spread. And so I, I would be disappointed if there actually 
was regulation on social media, and that's as someone who's constantly afraid of being trolled. <laughs> and so, you know, you would think that I would be a proponent for let's actually shut down other people kind of voicing their opinions sometimes in a negative way. Um, but I think especially it's 2020, it's an election year when there's false information that's being spread very quickly. Um, I thought it was interesting that it was a move by Twitter, to be frank, because I know there's been a lot of pushback on Twitter where people are still waiting for an edit button and they seem sometimes slow to make changes to their platform um, that they moved so quickly and that their first kind of uh, stand was on a tweet that wasn't where the original controversy was from earlier in the day. You know, Twitter's move didn't satisfy like any side in that way. Like, I don't think liberals were super happy. I don't think conservatives were happy at all. And and now Donald Trump's going to make a decision or make some kind of move based off of it. So it is this tricky spot. I was also super surprised to see uh, Mark Zuckerberg come after Twitter yesterday. I don't know if you guys saw that. I haven't even seen this. Where, 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 what happened here? He said something kind of along the lines of like social media companies should not be the arbiters of truth and Twitter should not have, have done that. And it's like, pretty sure Facebook just should not be talking in general, <laughs> ever. No, but yeah, I was, I was really surprised about that. Talk about all these different opinions. I mean, one thing, so, so moving on a little bit to, to remote work, but um, we've been running this series called Three Views or Three Perspectives in which we've been trying to Taken all the change going on, I mean, this is a great example, you know, the huge amount of controversy over social media and, and regulation and free speech. But another one is simply, you know, post COVID-19, how are we going to work, right? Like we were just talking about TikTok, which is, a, you know, one of the first Chinese owned apps, you know, now one of the most important consumer, you know, companies in America, you know, remote work, the idea that any entrepreneur anywhere can kind of start a company is starting. But at the same time, we have this enormous economic depression happening. You know, just uh, on Thursday, yesterday, another 2.1 million people joined the unemployment rolls. We've just crossed 40 million in the last two months alone. And so I'm curious, like, you know, taking in all the news, Facebook saying that they're going to have half their employee base remote in the next couple of years, that they're going to, you know, adjust salaries for their employees for, for cost of living. How do we take all of this? Like, what's the stance in terms of remote work and startups going forward? Yeah, it's interesting because I think that when forced to most of us who have the luxury of, you know, a desk job, we're able to adapt fairly quickly to not being in a physical office with our colleagues. That having been said, I still worry that it's a short-term solution and not kind of a long-term trajectory. And what I mean by that is, is mentoring still happening, right? What is career progression going to look like? There's been a lot of debate about, um, you know, what will remote work look like if the CEO is not remote, right? And won't there still be that temptation for either FaceTime or being able to align yourself by catching someone in the hallway for five minutes. That's very hard to do when you have to schedule official time on someone's calendar via Zoom. And so I'm curious to see once I'll go as broad as to say, you know, a vaccine is widely available and people have the option of going back to the office, whether more people than we expect now will actually choose that path. Because I do think that whether it's, you know, going to a physical campus for school where it's not really about the teaching that's happening in the classroom, but rather the cohort that you now get to be a part of, it's a very similar feeling, at least I found in my career, as to which company you're a part of and the learning that happens through collaborating with your colleagues that's really hard still to replicate online curious to see like on on that point like what retention looks like for these companies that are all i believe like the it's some, some names that i'm thinking of are twitter obviously facebook box shopify um and the list continues but i'm curious to see how the retention rates change and if if employees start leaving because they lack that mentorship i i imagine there'll be an exodus of sorts of, of tech workers i mean and 
it's crazy because what's inclusive is just not as interactive and that's just a theme we keep seeing through this quarantine is that maybe widening the pool in this case takes away from the magic of of working in an office i never thought i would say that line but i miss it truly <laughs> I, you, I really you miss say it. that as you're sitting on the floor of your closet <laughs> with a sheet over you <laughs> people this promise the new... me like a studio or something yeah. <laughs> i don't know if this is all true you but... decided that 10 roommates wasn't the right approach well i will say we uh i, I hosted along with my colleague jordan crook my, my boss's 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 boss, um, Verizon CEO, uh, Hans Vesberg. And one of the comments that he makes where I thought was really interesting and, and sort of self-reflecting was like, you know, because everything in the company is on Zoom, you know, he, he's noticed that there's not as much of this dynamic where everyone's sort of staring at him for an answer or a solution within the context. Everyone's the same box in a Zoom video. It actually, you know, by degrading kind of the quality of the communication, a lot of those distinctions that we make in person kind of go away. And so I wonder, you know, just given kind of the, the, the challenges in tech around, you know, gender dynamics, race dynamics, whether that in some ways Zoom is actually solving some of that for, for startups and large companies. I, I think the vulnerability is definitely at an all-time high, um, as you guys see me in my closet set up. But no, in in all seriousness, I, I saw a tweet the other day that was like, if you can't get a, a a diverse panel for your Zoom panel, like that that says something about a lack of energy from your end, not from a lack of access. And you know that was true when it was in real life, but it's even more true now. Um, if we're widening. How how easy it is to access people. I, I really hope that trickles down to what our what our moderated moderated panels look like and talk about too. I think it'll be interesting also to see, especially at the companies where it's an opt-in, whether you want to be remote or not going forward, if you will see differences based on function, right? So for example, are a lot of engineers uh, happy to be individual contributors and would be maybe more resistant to having to take over managing of a team? Are they more likely and is it part of the culture to say, yeah, you kind of work odd hours anyways and we trust you're getting your work done versus are there other functions and making one up but like business development where they tend to work more as a team and require so much interacting with other parties within the organization that they feel like it's easier to be able to do that when you're physically in the same location. One question I have here is, you know, obviously it sounds like a lot of te tech talent is going to move, you know, presumably out of SF because it's such a large hub to, to cheaper uh, cities. So like, for instance, just on Facebook in the last two weeks, I've had at least five or six friends said, who've literally got up at least, you know, gone to their Winnebago's and have moved to other cities. One went to Portland, two went to Austin, one went out east. But I'm curious, like, ultimately, is this going to be good for startups and entrepreneurship? Like, you know, in, in one view, a lot of folks are going to be leaving. That knowledge is going to go with them. So you have folks who know go to market. They know product management. They know a lot of these different skills. And they're going to show up in, in cities that may not have as much of those skills. Or is it that, you know, without that concentration in one place, it's harder to build new startup ideas, it's harder to kind of get a team together and formed? Like, is, is this ultimately going to be good for the startup ecosystem? I think one of the big questions that, to be frank, I feel like it's too early for us to know yet is where's the concentration of money going to be to fund those startups? And um, I think, you know, one of the things that people are, are talking about, but no one's actually giving an answer to is this question of how many of the funding announcements are happening brand new since Shelter in Place has 
been in order, meaning that, um, you know, I heard Keith Raboy at the Sasser Summit say yesterday that, yes, he's announced a, a fairly large number of deals since quarantine has happened, but all of those had, I believe he said something along the lines of high velocity going into March 15th. So there were companies that he knew, he'd already started having those conversations. And even within our portfolio, I would say, you know, we've had maybe one or two companies that have fundraised during this period, but most of them were from pre-existing relationships, if not insiders. And so we have yet to actually test, will VCs close deals that got started as relationships over Zoom? And I'm sure there are examples of that, but unless there's a critical mass, I think people are still going to feel tempted that they need to be physically near their VCs because, especially these days, you know, are all board meetings going forward going to be over Zoom? Maybe, but the likelihood that a VC is going to get on a flight until, again, there's a vaccine that's widely available is probably a lot less than it would have been in the past. Yeah, I, I, I've definitely heard the same thing from VCs. I've asked the exact same questions to, which is like, are you now more open to distribu distributed deals than before? And, you know, no one has come out the gate saying, yes, we are now, you know, investing all over the world because now all it takes is a screen. People are still living in their version of the pandemic where there is a future insight that they want to be in arm's reach somewhat. Like, I think the most dramatic I've heard is like a Boston investor investing in New York based companies, which is nothing, you know, revolutionary. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I agree. It's revolutionary considering the, the Excel is not even, you know, I was going to say, functional. yeah, it's like now <laughs> people have to drive themselves. You're asking that of a VC. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, but the, the human component of investing and the human component of starting a company is like definitely the biggest struggle I've seen. Like they don't know how to get to know someone. I think like they're thinking like Zoom cocktail hours and dinner parties, but I don't know how, you know, how how deep that's gonna get us into into an overall wave of change for for startups born in, in Portland, for example. Well, I think one of the um, interesting dynamics, I was actually talking to a VC about this this weekend. It's one thing to source, right? It's one thing to actually find that these companies exist, that they're they're out there and to connect with them. It's another thing to actually win the deal. Right, everyone can source. Everyone sort of democratize. You can, you can, in many ways, source from anywhere in the world. But when it comes to getting that CEO to say, "I want you to be on my board. I want your check, and not the check from the other ten or twelve investors." Let's say you're doing super well, but the other ten or twelve investors who are chasing the deal at the same time. You know, b back when I was a VC, it, it's the classic like, "Did you get the sushi dinner? Did you, you know, double down? Do we send like ten partners at ten different hours?" Like, you know, we used to send folks like on flights immediately. It's like, "Hey, there's a deal going down. We need you tonight at a dinner." And, you know, I go to the airport as someone's calling to try to get me a ticket onto a flight for the next SF base flight. You know, you do that to win. But in a Zoom world, it's weird, right? Because your ability to persuade an entrepreneur to, say, take your money over your competitor firm's checkbook, to me, is much more limited. And that might be a narrow slice of, of the VC world. But for when it comes down to the actual mechanics, that's really, really important on the VC side. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, again, there's the question in my mind of what does relationship building look like in the future, right? Is it going to be a physical thing? Because especially for us at the early stages, when we write a check into a company, it may be before uh, it makes sense for a board to actually be put in place, but we're still very involved. And so we're probably on a cadence of meeting with them, you know, every two weeks and spending time with them to help them iterate on their tests and see if there's evidence of product market fit. And in fairness, we already do invest in companies outside the Bay Area but I will be frank in the fact that the vast majority are 
within driving distance of us, right? I mean, I feel like there's always been the question of when is LA, for example, or Austin, you know, my partner Mike is, is from Texas, when are those going to become the hubs at the same level as the Valley? You know, some would argue New York has achieved that, but I think that it's hard to find a lot of examples, Utah being a great one, right? Especially for enterprise SaaS, there's been so many great companies that have come out over the last couple of years. And, and there's been different reasons people have cited as to why it hasn't become the scale of Silicon Valley yet. You know, one of them being like, are there enough angel investors? And so there is still the question in my mind of if the investors aren't physically there, will you have in some sense the infrastructure? You know, one of the things that's happening these days with investors is it's not just about the money, right? Do you have a network? Are you going to be able to help me hire? And that's, I think, also harder to do if you're not physically from the area where you're looking to hire from. I think that's absolutely right. And Iris, to close up the show here, how are you feeling right now about the investment world? I mean, are you excited? Is there a ton of opportunities? Are you, are you sort of just waiting by and hoping that all this goes away? What, what's sort of on your mind right now? Yeah, so a couple things. It's funny because part of the reason why I started doing market musings was trying to understand from a startup um, kind of ecosystem perspective, how does what's happening in the public market actually trickle through, right? And it's totally normal to expect there to be a fairly significant lag because especially at the stage that we're investing at, we're not expecting our companies to go public in the near future, right? We're kind of starting the 10 year plus journey with them as soon as we write in a C check. And so um, I think for us, we spent the early days of, of quarantine making sure all of our portfolio companies had enough funding to last them, I would say two to three years. And it's partly because we weren't necessarily expecting quarantine to last for that long, although these days, who knows, but it's more that we had had seen um, these types of cycles before, where when there's a big public market correction, oftentimes the expectation is the, the later stage investors, and by that I mean anyone later than us, is going to expect there to be a discount going forward on valuation. And so if you don't necessarily want to have to raise at either a down round or a significant haircut to what you probably could achieve independent of the, the pandemic, then you probably just need to try not to have to raise. And so I think that's what I'm kind of waiting to see is how many deals are you going to start getting done again with a brand new investor, not someone who is already on the cap table that's stepping up or being opportunistic. Um, and even that's tricky because what I'm hearing is that some of the later stages, people are going back to um, investors that maybe they didn't have capacity for in their Series C, et cetera, and saying, hey, I'll reopen the round for you, same terms. And so it looks like someone who's brand new coming into the company, but it's actually someone who they've already built a relationship with over for two years. And so even though, you know, I joke every day of quarantine feels like dog years, the actual period of time that we've been in this like blip has only been what, like eight to 10 weeks. And so it still feels early for me to have a good sense of what the repercussions feel like that will last us for the next, you know, two plus years. Absolutely. Well, the good news is, is that with no cars on the road these days, driving distance in terms of startup hubs, you can get down to LA on the 405 and what, I think an hour now from, from Palo Alto these days. So a lot more hubs are coming into the market and a lot more to be seen. But that is our show for today. Um, Iris Troy of Floodgate Capital, thank you so much for joining us. Tosh, thank you for being a great co-host as always. We'll have Alex Wilhelm hopefully back here, assuming he doesn't go on another week of vacation, which is definitely not deserved whatsoever. Uh, but this is Danny Crane. This is Equity. Thank you so much for joining us. 